We're reading this evening in the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 3. And we want to commence our reading at verse 1. It's found on page 1065 in the Church Bible. Page 1065, John chapter 3. Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He's been in the temple. And so there uh, in the temple, uh, he would have come into contact with um, those who were the leaders of the church of the Old Testament, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. uh, And uh, here now we read of one of those church leaders coming uh, to Jesus and talking to him uh, by night about salvation. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi or teacher, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, your people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, In the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light that it may be seen plainly that what he has, been, what he has done has been done through God. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray as we remain seated. Lord God, we come into the light. The light of your word. The light of your presence. And you, O God, see what no one else can see. You see into the heart of man. And you know what is in man. Nicodemus did not have to answer your questions, Lord Jesus, to give you information. For you already knew what was in him. And you were simply causing him to come to express the reality of where he stood in relation to you. To show that he did not know or did not understand the crucial thing, the new birth, being right with God, though he knew many things and taught many things about God. Lord God, we are privileged today to know so much about you. Lord God, we pray that you would ensure that each one of us does not simply know about you, but that we personally know you. That we know you in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the light of the world, the one in whom there is no darkness. And we pray, Lord God, now that as we come to look at this passage of your word together, that you would cause us to have understanding in our minds and cause us to have faith in our hearts and enable us to receive Christ for who he is, the Saviour of the world. Bless us, Lord, in our efforts to reach out this week also and enable us by our lives, by our lips, and by our witness to proclaim Jesus, the Christ, the light and the Saviour of the world. We pray it in his name. Amen.
as most of you will uh, know, um, Heather and I had 48 hours in London uh, during the past week. The purpose in going was to attend a concert in the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, and uh, so Thursday evening and then on Friday uh, we spent our time in that part of London, the Kensington area of London. And one of the things that uh, struck us uh, as we were just walking around observing buildings and, and um, doing things like that and sightseeing a little bit was the fact that there is a covert witness to God and to his salvation uh, and to his almighty power that's tied up with many of those historic buildings in London. We're living in a day and generation when the knowledge of God is being, and how it can be made known, is being limited. Uh, government is putting restrictions on Christians, what they can say uh, in work, uh, what they uh, might well uh, communicate uh, on social networks, what they might do in their homes, uh, as you heard last Wednesday evening from Callum Webster when he spoke on behalf of the Christian Institute. But it's remarkable that when you look at the buildings that were built 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, during the reign of Queen Victoria, we were in the Royal Albert Hall, and of course that ties up with Queen Victoria, uh, there is uh, then uh, the monument uh, to uh, Albert, uh, and there's lots of other things in that area that speak of the reign of Queen Victoria. And when we're looking at the Royal Albert Hall, about a third of the way down, you look at the outside of it, uh, and you have these words. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. The wise and their works are in the hand of God. Glory to be, God, be to God on high and on earth peace. Those words are written, are inscribed in 12 inch print uh, in a mosaic frieze around the Albert Hall. There are three quotations from Scripture. First Chronicles 29 verse 11, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1, and Luke 2 verse 14. The very buildings cry out and give testimony to God in her land. What a wonderful thing that is in this day and generation. And not far from the Royal Albert Hall, there's another um, uh, monument. This one we didn't see, uh, but I know of, and it's called Cleopatra's Needle. It is uh, an Egyptian stone column. It's almost three and a half thousand years old. It stands in the Victoria Embankment, overlooking the Thames in the city of Westminster. 
It stood there for over 130 years. There are many things, again, that are impressive about that monument. Its height, its age, its history, the role that it played in Egyptian life, the story of its journey to England. But most impressive of all for me is the fact that the words of John 3, verse 16, are inscribed there in many, many languages. All the known languages of the world in 1878 when it was erected. It stands there as a testimony to God's salvation. And it struck me as um, as um, people come to visit London, and London is an international city, and in this year of the Olympics, we should be praying that as people come simply to see sport or history or buildings, that the very testimony that's inscribed there on many buildings to God would be a means of salvation to people. So tonight I want to speak to you in John chapter 3 verse 16. These words that are inscribed um, the base of the Cleopatra's needle, this Egyptian stone column there uh, on the Victoria embankment. These words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They are undoubtedly the best known words uh, of the Gospels. Martin Luther, the German reformer, described this as the Bible in miniature. If you had an opportunity to speak to someone, and if you wanted to, and you'd only a limited time to do it, Luther was of the opinion he would go to this text. It's the Bible in miniature. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And so this evening, uh, as we think about uh, this verse, um, we want to do so in four parts. The headings are not original to me, uh, but the sermon uh, is my own preparation after that. First of all, we see that God loves the worst. God loves the worst. For God so loved the world. Rightly, our text begins with God. And you and I, and we, must always begin with God. Because it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. We should begin every day with God. Um, Speaking to someone at the church weekend, last weekend, a young person said to me, every morning when I wake up, I want my first thoughts to be of God. And in our witness, we've got to always begin with God. Not with man, not with the world, but with God. Who he is. Before anything else, exists, God existed. He is infinite. In other words, he can't be measured. He is eternal. That means he's no beginning. 
and there's no ending. And he is unchangeable. So things that we read about God in this book, the Bible, um, about how he has worked in the past, and how he's dealt with people in the past, things about his character, those are still true today. Things we see of God in the created world, those have not changed, because he has not changed. He's a God who's glorious, a God who's majestic, a God is exalted and powerful. Who needs no one or nothing. And yet he's a God who has made. And he's made the world. And this word, the world, is used in different ways in John's Gospel. And in our text, John links God very clearly with the world, as does all of Scripture. God is not distant. God is not far removed from the world. God hasn't somehow just winded up like a clock and then left the world and withdrawn to go in its own course in its own way. No, God is actively and continuously and intimately involved in his world. We're told elsewhere in scripture about him making the world. And here we're told now about God's love for the world. For God so loved the world. But what does John mean by this word world? Well the word is used 67 times in John's gospel. It's used in various ways. It's used to speak of the created universe, that is, the world. What we see around us. God made the world, chapter 1, verse 10. He sustains it, he controls it. Compared to God and his greatness, the created world, the Psalms tell us, and Isaiah that I'm reading my own time, the quiet time tells us, it's like a speck of dust. It's like a drop in a bucket. Okay, you've got a leak in your roof and the rain comes and there's a drip. Well, that's what the world is like compared to this great majestic God. But that's not the meaning that the world has here. It's not referring to the created universe. John is using the word world here in an ethical or moral sense. He's using it to speak of men and women in rebellion against God. Men and women, as it were, shaking their fist in the face of God and saying, who do you think you are? In the words of Frank Sinatra, I will do it my way. That's the world. God, who do you think you are? I will live life. I will make choices. And I will do it my way. It's defiance. It's alienation. It's separation as a result of sin. 
That's the world in our text here tonight. Not every single person who's ever lived, but is speaking of man, or not, it's not referring to people individually, but it's speaking of mankind as a whole. And his emphasis is not on the vastness of the world, but on the badness of the world. For God so loved the world. And that's a staggering statement. To bring together this almighty, holy, perfect God. And this rebellious, corrupt, alienated, sinful race. That says to God, who do you think you are? And I will do it my way. And yet, the two are brought together by this verb, loves. God loves the world. The world of sinners. As Paul discovered, God loves the chief of sinners. The worst of sinners. Yes, the murderer, the blasphemer, idolater, the covetous person. In the light of our text, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you can't say, I'm too bad for God to reach me. Or for God to be concerned about me. God loves the worst. He loves man, not when man is perfect, and this this word is or this phrase is spoken of God, not when man is in his perfect, sinless condition, but now in a fallen and corrupt, hellish state. God so loved the world. But then let's notice secondly. God gave the best. God gave the best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What has God done in the face of a world, in the face of a human race that shakes its fist in his face and says, we will do it our way. What has God done in the face of a world that is at enmity, that is at war with him? A world that is morally and spiritually at odds with him. Yet a world that he loves. God could justly and rightly have destroyed the world. Not just for a moment uh, in the experience of Noah, but wipe the whole universe and all of mankind out in the very person of Adam and in the sin of Adam. But instead our text tells us God gave his only begotten son. And John 
arranges the words here in such a way that emphasizes the radical nature of God's gift. The astonishing reality of God's gift. The uniqueness, the greatness, the liberality of God's gift. Liberally it is His Son. He gave. It wasn't an angel that he gave. Though he had thousands upon thousands of angels, an innumerable number of perfect created spirits in heaven, but it wasn't they whom God gave. God didn't give a thing. He didn't give an animal. He didn't give a bird. No, his son he gave. Would you give your son for somebody who had lifted their fist and shook their fist in your face? Would you give your son would I give my son for someone who had rebelled and mistreated me and despised me and mocked me and said, I don't want anything to do with you? Well, that's what God has done. He gave his son to deal with this problem of human sin and human rebellion. And notice the kind of son. It's his only begotten son. He is only one son. And this son is his eternal son. This is not a son that he's made. So that he can fulfill this purpose. This is actually God giving himself. Giving himself. Because the Son and the Father, the Holy Spirit, though they are three distinct persons, they are one God. And so God decided. In eternity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That the Son, His beloved Son, His only begotten Son, the Son that proceeds in the is, is, is part of him to take human flesh and bone to deal with the problem of human rebellion. That's how great the gift is. That's, as we can put it like this, how best the gift is. There isn't a better gift. There wasn't a greater gift that God could give than this. And this son came in human flesh and bone. And he lived the sinless life that you and I cannot live. And he died a shameful, horrible, hell-deserving death. That we deserve to die for sin. He took that cup. 
which was filled to overflowing with the righteous wrath of God, and it was brimming over down the side, and Christ put it to his lips, as it were. And he didn't just take a sip of it. He said, no. You and I sometimes were given something to drink, and it goes against our taste. And we take a sip, and we leave it. That's not what the only blood and son did. He drank the cup till there was nothing left in the cup. Though it was the most unpalatable cup that he could ever have imagined or been offered or been given. God gave the best. His only begotten son. And the verb give is an tense which emphasizes a single giving. This was a giving once and for all. God didn't give his son over and over and over again as the Roman Catholic Mass declares. Christ was sacrificed once to bear the sins of the world. That's of all kinds of people. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. Not just the sins of Protestants, but of Roman Catholics. Not just the sins of Europeans, but of Africans and Americans and Australians. Not just the sins of good, decent people, but the sins of evidently and um, uh, publicly wicked people. God's gift to the world is his son. Do you see how men and women and boys and girls are saved? Do you who are not Christians here tonight? God gave what? He gave his son, his only begotten son, that the likes of you and the likes of me can be saved. Let's see then how God demands the least. That's our third point. He demands the least. That whoever believes in him. How does this salvation that Jesus secured and accomplished by his life and by his death on the cross how does that become yours? How does it become mine? Well, there are many things in life and they become ours by buying them. Guarantee this week. You'll not be able to live this week without going and buying things. Food. Pepper. Other things. So the things that we buy in order to live. This things that we inherit. Parents leave us their earthly possessions or a great aunt leaves us that money that she's stacked away under the mattress but she doesn't trust the banks any longer. And we get things by inheriting. 
We get things by learning and by working. All of us here in this room, our families will be, tomorrow there will be somebody from our family who will go and they will get things for your benefit by working. Go into the office, go into the factory, they'll go somewhere and they will work. And that's how you have those things that are needed to live. You buy them, you hurt them, or you work for them. But not salvation. Not salvation. This gift that God gives, the forgiveness of our sins, we don't get it by putting money or giving money to God, either in the collection plate or giving money to God in some other way. It can't be bought. And what's more, it can't be inherited. No matter how much we as parents love our children or your parents have loved you, they cannot will this salvation to you. Can't be written in and obtained by you through their acts. And what's more, we can't work for it. Can't work for it. We can't say to God, Well, God, I know that I'm not a very good person, and there's lots of things wrong in my life. But then, God, you've got to look at this other side of my life and be kind to my children and I love my wife and do good to my neighbour and all these things. God, surely you can balance the books a little bit. Will it not be the good things that I've done outweigh the bad things that I've done? And so I work for my salvation. John says no. It doesn't say for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever works, that whoever gives money, that whoever is born in a Christian home or is part of the Christian church, no, it's none of those things. It's great, it's none of those things. Because what if we don't go up in a Christian home? What if our good deeds don't outweigh our bad and they won't outweigh the bad? We'll be lost. What if we don't give enough? We'll be lost. But you see, it's not by giving. It's not by working. It's not by buying. It's by believing. It's by believing. And we all can believe, can't we? That is something that is possible. It's, it's something that's, that's doable, it's attainable by everyone. Whoever believes in him. Notice that. Whoever 
We don't have to be good. We don't have to come to, from a certain background. We don't have to do certain things. It is whoever, it's wide, wide open, whoever believes in him. That means you. That means me. That means each one of us. If you believe in him, you can put your own name in this verse. That if Harry believes in him, that if Mary believes in him, that if Paul believes in him, see, God demands the least. He demands the least. To believe, what is it then? To believe. It's to turn from everything in yourself. It's to turn to Christ alone. And to say, Jesus, only, only in you, the eternal Son of God, do I have our sinless life that is available to me. Jesus, only in you, do I have someone who can take my sin-filled life from me. And so I believe in you. You're all believers tonight, you know. Do you like that? In a very real sense, you've all faith tonight. You come in, and you sat down in your seat. And you're believing that that seat will hold you up as you cast your weight upon it. You see, that's what it means to believe in Christ. It's to cast ourselves on him. And it's to believe that he will hold us up. He'll not let us down, neither now nor the day of judgment. That his sinless life becomes my sinless life in God's sight. And my sinful life, as it casts upon him, will not sink. We're in solid ground. So the gift of salvation in the same way as a chair in this room tonight, when you come in tonight, you could sit on a chair. I was believing you could exercise faith. And tonight, as you hear this message, you are to exercise faith. You are to put your whole trust and confidence in Jesus alone. One writer put it like this. In terms of believing in him. And the fact that it is for whoever. Christ uses the universal term. Whosoever to invite all indiscriminately. To partake of life. All men without exception. All of you. Indiscriminately and without exception. Will have an opportunity of sitting in a chair. Believing. And all of you tonight have an opportunity, indiscriminately, without exception, to rest, as it were, to sit upon Christ, to set your life, and to rest your life upon Him. Let's notice then, finally and briefly, as your time's gone, God provides the most. God loves the worst. God gives the best. God demands the least. God provides the most. Look at how our text ends shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, this salvation 
it does have a bearing and a blessing here and now in that you and I begin to live for Christ now and we're different people and we're new people and we're better people not because of us but because of him yes that's all present that's the present outworking of this salvation but this salvation also has a future dimension to it because we that is you and I we're not just bodies we have eternal souls and under our sin and without Christ do you know what happens to us? we perish doesn't mean we cease to exist but we don't reach the purpose for which we were made glorifying God and so we perish in hell it's speaking about hell and about judgment that comes upon the person that is not saved the person that does not believe that's the negative you want to put in terms of the future for those who do not believe but then look at the other side for those who do believe but have eternal life there's heaven heaven it's eternal life it's living to the glory of God forever and ever living to the glory of God in my full and total capacity no I can't do that I think around with it from day to day. But I'm not very good at it. But in heaven, you will do it perfectly. It's everlasting life. And so hell and heaven are real places. As real as your home. And those who do not believe in Christ go to hell. And those who believe in him go to heaven. And have eternal life. And so God. In a very real sense. For those who believe. What does he do? He provides the most. Not just. That we can live life better now. But that we can live life. In heaven. Eternal life. Can I ask you this evening? Have you believed in him? Are you now tonight believing in him? Resting on him? If you are, you shall not perish. If you aren't believing in him, you will perish. Unless you believe in him. The only begotten Son. God provided for the world, for sinners, for those who shake their fist in His face and to say, We'll do it our way. God says, No. Do that. Go to hell. Do it the way of Christ. You go to heaven. The way of faith repentance. Amen.
Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for so great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The fact that you gave not of a thing. You didn't give a creature. You didn't give an angel. You gave yourself. In the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. You're only begotten. And we thank you, Lord God, that all that Jesus was in his life without sin and all that he did in his death taking sin upon himself that this is ours not because we have money to buy it not because we have parents who will it to us not because we work for it but it is ours because we believe in him whom you sent. Lord, help us to keep believing in him whom you have sent. In the midst of a world that is fallen and broken, in the midst of lives that still are very fragile and sinful and imperfect. Help us to keep believing in Him. Lord, for any tonight who have not yet believed in Him, bring them now by Your Holy Spirit to rest upon Him even as they are resting upon a chair tonight to hold them up physically that Jesus is the one who will hold them up spiritually present them with us faultless before your throne of grace help us to think often about the everlasting life that is ours in him the fact that then we will be perfectly what we ought to be and that is those who give glory to your name continually. In Jesus' name. Amen.